0: As I said, we're going to try and record this. I'm not sure how this will work with me kind of just yelling over the top, but we'll give it a shot. Uh, this is the second semester of relational theology, the first class. Or if you don't like semesters, it's relational theology number 12, which is a hint to those of you who just got the notes and it's up in the top right-hand corner, wondering what that meant. <laughs> Okay, we started with a little illustration. Anyone remember this? Yeah. This is my wonderful artwork. You're Uh, beautiful. Yeah. I I thought it was Tasmania. I figured out that if you turn over, it looks a bit like Tasmania. Okay, but the, the idea is that often the questions that people have are the tip of the iceberg. And it's the 90% that is below that determines the answer. And a lot of times people haven't actually dealt with those issues. And that's what our whole first term was about, laying a biblical foundation for theology so that we can see the bigger picture of what God's doing. And then we'll be able to apply that as we get into some of the theological questions that uh, face us as individuals, but also us in our culture, in churches, and so those are the type of things that we're going to be trying to do. My goal is to, having laid that foundation, to help you learn how to examine theology, philosophies, doctrine, teaching, to see if it's biblical. My goal isn't to answer all the questions, but to help you learn how to to do that, in the process, we're going to handle some of the bigger ones. Uh, unfortunately, with that, that gets quite in-depth. And so if it gets too in-depth for you, uh, let me know. This is, my desire in this class is that it's interactive. If I'm saying something you don't understand, let me know. If you have a question, <coughs> say something and we'll, uh, we'll do it. It's, it's a whole lot easier. I found the uh, the recordings that we did. We started the other class. Uh, the first semester, and then we went to recordings. I found that very difficult because it's amazing how much feedback you get from just people's face. Mm -hmm. Do they understand? (laughs) Is Johan falling asleep back (laughs) (laughs) there? You know, so that kind of stuff helps quite a bit. So this evening is really going to be a bit of a review. If you just finished listening to all the first semester this last week, then this will be boring. Most of you finished that at least three months ago and uh, have, probably don't remember uh, what it was. Someone told me today that they were driving and they listened to Sunday's sermon and got home, and the wife asked them what it was about. And he said, I don't remember it. <laughs> so he listened to it again. <laughs> Found you two things at once. <laughs> So, just a quick review. The first term we talked about uh, a covenantal-shaped view of theology. Okay? If you remember, we talked about a progressive, God's progressive revelation of himself and as identified in a number of covenants that he made, which by itself tells us a whole lot about God, that he chose covenants as the means of Revealing himself and his plan. Uh, We started with understanding that we were made for relationship and rulership. That those were both lost at the fall. Satan then became the ruler of this world. And uh, when Jesus came, he established his kingdom again. So it was uh, not a new kingdom, but restoring the kingdom. Uh, And the, the whole covenant, building up to the whole new covenant, was the whole focus. Uh, sometimes it amazes me how people miss that and just have no clue that that's really what the Bible is aiming at uh, but also with that Jesus taught the truth of the kingdom of God John one 1.14 says about Jesus and the word became flesh and dwelt among us uh, Psalm 119.160 says the entirety of your word is truth so we could say the truth became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus' being the word was, is the truth, and the truth became flesh and dwelt among us. In fact, Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We often focus on the way. No one comes to the Father but by me, but he also says, I am the truth. And uh, John 18, from verse 37 This is uh, Jesus before Pilate. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you you a king then? And Jesus answered, You say rightly that I'm a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So Jesus was the representation of truth. The plan of God. He was the the culmination of all this revelation. You still with me? But, as we're aware, because Satan is the ruler of this world, that when Jesus uh, brought truth to the planet, he set up a conflict with the kingdom of darkness, with the devil who is a deceiver. Uh, And so there's this conflict. That conflict is one of two kingdoms. It's a conflict of of power which we've been talking about on Sunday, and we'll finish again with this coming Sunday. But it's also a conflict of truth. It's a battle for truth. The devil's a deceiver. But Jesus brings truth. And so I want to read you a couple of scriptures. 1 Timothy. Again, just a reminder, but also setting a foundation for where we're going. 1 Timothy chapter 3. In verse 15, says, But if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. So Jesus is bringing this concept of truth to the church. Chapter 4. Verse 1, and the Spirit expressly says in latter days or times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. So saying that they're not going to be accepting the truth. Verse 13, till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Let's make sure that we're aware of that in verse 16 for the sake of time. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine of the teaching. Continue in them, so for in so doing you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Uh, just turn over to 2 Timothy. Paul continues in his second book in 1.13. He said, hold fast the pattern of sound words or doctrine which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing or handling the word of truth. Chapter 3. Know that in the latter days, perilous times will come. Talks about all this stuff and those who who will, won't follow the truth. Uh, and from verse 12, But all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, but evil men and apostles will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue the things which you've learned, been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, that from your childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And he goes on, charges you to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because of their itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, They will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Sounds important. What I want you to see from that is this. The battle for truth has been handed over to the church. We're the representatives. We're the ambassadors for Christ. Not just to extend his kingdom and tell the gospel, but to maintain truth, the pillar and ground of truth. Satan, who is the deceiver, the God of this world, always tries to destroy, distort, or dilute the truth. Because he's a deceiver. That's who he is. What truth? The truth about God. The truth about his kingdom. The truth about his ways. The truth about his interaction with man. It always amazes me when I talk to people how they've got some really weird ideas about God. I think, where does that come from? It comes from the deceiver. Why do they believe that? Because the church has fallen down on the job Mm -hmm. of guarding the truth. That's us. So, that's what we're going to do. So, by way of reminder, we talked about how do you determine if something is uh, biblically accurate in your notes there. I'm going to just remind you of three things real quick. Is it what God said? What did God say? 2 so Corinthians says that uh, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That word most of you know in the Greek is God breathed. And so what God says, what God had inspired, what God breathed is the word. And so what did God say? or lack of a better term you can say, is it accurate in translation? Now that's important because he's the author. And only what he says is his word. Not what man says. Now if nothing else, if you get nothing out of the rest of this class, get that. What did God say? the authority of the word is what God said. It's not what man says, not what man says God should have said, not what we'd like God to have said, not someone's comment on what they think God said. It really comes down to what did God say? That's the first point. Uh, in other words, what does it actually say in the original? Now, it doesn't mean that you have to know Greek and Hebrew. There's a lot of good helps. But, Are you aware, in my Bible, they uh, put in italics the words that they add that aren't actually there in the original, because I think it reads easier, Now, which is okay as long as you know it, that they're not there. Let me give you an example. Most of you have heard me talk about this, but I'm going to do it anyway. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. But the word gifts is in italics. It's not actually there in the Greek. It actually says, Now concerning the spirituals or the supernatural, brother, I don't want you to be ignorant. Yet we've got a whole doctrine and teaching around spiritual gifts. Even to the point, I was talking with someone from a different denomination a couple years ago, and they said, I used to teach this, that the gifts of the calling of God are without repentance. And so, if you've been given a gift, if you've got the word of of knowledge, and you turn your back on Christ, that's where uh, soothsayers and, and palm readers people come from. I said, that's ridiculous. They're actually demonized. But you're saying that's God? Why? Because we built the whole doctrine around a word gifts that isn't even there. So you stay with me. What does God say? There's a lot of good helps written that anyone can use. You don't have to speak uh, Hebrew or Greek. Uh, But it does say this. It makes the choice of what translation you use when you study of critical importance.
1: So
0: what is your translation? I use a translation that is as much as possible word for word. There are word for word translations, there are thought for thought translations. Which is the the, the one I use, I use specifically because <coughs> it puts those extra words in italics. And I like the fact that it does. Otherwise you have to every scripture you don't know. Now if you read the NIV it doesn't put that in italics so that's why I've asked you. Yeah, I, I use uh, New King James, uh, but there's a lot of... ESV is a word-for-word, word, but it doesn't put those words in italics. It's, it uses virtually the same as the New King James, but it doesn't actually put that the added words in italics, so you know they're not there. Well we're on that, let me just throw another thought at you along that line, because this is one of my favorite ones. Ephesians chapter 1. I'm getting sidetracked here. It says, uh, talking about uh, the, the power toward us, uh, verse 20, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at, the, at his right hand in the heavenly places. It says, far above all rule or principality, power, might, and dominion, and every name which is named, not only in this age, but that which is to come. That's pretty good. It says, and he put all... Under his feet. And gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Chapter 2. I knew he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. That's how you've read it. Now let me read it again. Without the words that were added. And he put all under his feet and gave him head over all to the church. Not to be head over all. Gave him head over all to the church. Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, and you—not who were made alive—it's and you who were dead in trespasses and sin. Now, if you understand that the chapters aren't oh, there in the original, yeah. they're added, and so you have to be careful. Basically, saying he who is head over all things was given to the church. And you It's incredible. Mm. Think about that. Was't given to be head? He was head over all things, was given to be head over the church. No, he's head over all things. Mm. He was given to the church and you, mm. who were dead in your trespasses and sin. Mm. I mean that, that's just amazing. Now, I'm not going to argue with you about that. I'm just saying that you add a few words in there,
1: mm.
0: and it changes some of the idea. Okay? So, first key to biblical accuracy is what did God say? Is it accurate in translation? Uh, second key is does it doesn't include all that God said on the subject. Accurate in context. But including everything, you can't. Pick and choose. You can't take a word or a verse and say, "This is a biblical. I'm going to build a biblical concept out of this one word. You can't do that. You have to say, what all did God say? Okay? It's his revelation. We can't pick and choose the parts we like and don't like and take them totally out of context. In, in other words, we have to have a picture of, of the whole, not just one puzzle piece. It's like we take a puzzle piece and we decide that we're gonna make a whole doctrine, a whole picture out of that one puzzle piece. Well, it doesn't make any sense unless you actually see the picture and then you know where the puzzle piece fits in. Always amazes me how they uh, find one dinosaur tooth fossil (laughs) and they create a whole dinosaur. From one tooth. I always figured out. They're they're amazing, but we're not so good. Second Chronicles. Let me just throw throw another one in for you. Second Chronicles seven fourteen. I've heard a lot of people quoting this and it says, most of you know if my if my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from the wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. That's the COVID. That, that sounds exciting. And then people say, my people, which used to be Israel, is now the followers of Jesus. So if Christians will humble themselves and pray and turn from the wicked ways, God will hear from heaven and heal the land. But if you go back to chapter 6, where this starts, you'll find that they built the the temple and Solomon begins to pray that God would hear them, uh, that he would hear them from heaven. And he says a number of times, let's start in verse 24, if your people Israel, 25, your people Israel, if they turn if they hear, turn from their sin, verse 26, will you hear in heaven and forgive their sin of your servants, your people Israel? You're getting the story here. By all your people Israel. Over and over again, verse 33, your people Israel, your people. It's saying God's actually made a covenant with the nation that for a whole people, if they will serve him, he will pour out blessing on their land. And he's saying, if we as a people get away from you and we all repent and come back to you, will you hear us and forgive us? And God says, yes, I will. If my people, Israel, who are called by my name, so you can't pull it out of context and say, well, that applies to Christians now. That if we'll repent, someone said to me that the, fires we had was God's judgment on Australia because of, of uh, same-sex marriage and, homo- and uh, abortion and different things and that if, if the Christians would repent God would forgive and heal the land. Now, here's the question. What that does is open up a whole new theology that I can repent for someone else's sin. Because if God is judging the land because of people's sin, I'm not gay, I'm not involved in abortion, but someone else is. And if He's judging the land and we repent on their behalf, if we could, and God forgives us and heals the land, next week later He's going to have to bring judgment again. Because the very thing that brought the judgment hasn't changed. See, the idea, the Bible's very clear. The soul that sins will die. We can't repent for someone else's sin. Mm -hmm. So we make this whole focus, if we can just get the Christians to humble themselves and pray, to repent for someone else's sin, then God will forgive. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. If it's biblical, it's got to include everything God says. You can't pull words out and change it and say, my people there meant this, but now it means this. Because that's where you get into some strange things. You still with me? I'm sure I shook shook some of you with that. Do you forgive me anyway?
1: There's a question there, isn't there? Who is Israel today?
0: Israel is still Israel, but the kingdom, Israel is a type of the kingdom.
1: Yes.
0: And so the kingdom, it's all but the kingdom is no longer associated with the land. And that's where we get the problem. Israel was associated with the land because God was restoring not only relationship, but rulership. But the kingdom is no longer associated with the land. Australia is not the land of the kingdom of God. America is not the land of the kingdom of God. Think they but yeah, they <laughs> actually do. I mean, seriously. I mean, they're, they're, it's, no, no, it's there true. is such a mix of kingdom concept and American patriotism mm. that it makes it very, very difficult to help people really see what's the kingdom. Uh, so, but yeah, it's, it's followers says, of Jesus who are the kingdom.
1: Yeah.
0: Those are part of the New Covenant.
1: Paul says that one point in the scriptures and all Israel will be saved and we shouldn't be thinking just in terms of the land and the, the people that are bloodline from Abraham we should be thinking in terms of all the people that believe yeah. in Jesus all his people
0: yeah
1: is the true spiritual spiritual
0: Israel, Israel which is the kingdom yeah and you understand that the progressive revelation The kingdom always, a kingdom was always the realm over which a king ruled, and it was seen as physical boundaries. But the new covenant, the new kingdom of God, doesn't have physical boundaries. It's not the the land, it's the people over which he rules. Good. Okay, and third one. I've taken longer on this than I intended. Does it take into account other things that God has said? So we're talking about how do you know where something's biblically accurate? Does it take into account other things that God has said? Meaning, is it accurate in emphasis? You can't emphasize one truth and ignore all the rest of what God has said. And there's people who do that. They make a whole uh, ministry out of one truth and push that to an extreme. A friend of mine once said, if we take a truth and make it the truth, it quickly leads to untruth. So we can't take a single concept and push it beyond what the, the Bible says. Uh, as I said earlier, we need the whole picture, not just one puzzle piece. So let me ask you this, as an illustration. What's the most dominant characteristic of God in the Bible? Many of us would say love. 1 John 4, 8. Huh? Holiness. You, you've you've got this one. <laughs> one John four says God is love, mm-hmm. right? But what about holiness? What about Isaiah six three, where the angels around the throne cry holy, holy, holy? Mm-hmm. Revelations four eight, they're not crying loving, loving, loving. They're crying holy, holy, holy. Now, Leviticus nineteen two, God says, "I am holy." No in the Bible does God say, I am love. It's said about God, and he is. And when we understand the new covenant, we understand that God chose covenant as his means of revelation. We see that it's all about relationship and love. But you can't get so focused on that that you ignore the holiness of God completely. Otherwise, love becomes some just tolerance. You can do whatever you want. And, and we misunderstand what the atonement, what salvation is all about, which we'll get to later on. Uh, I read once a a, a guy, theologian, A.W. Pink. He said, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God is the sun around which the whole universe of other doctrines revolves. Now that sounds like a great statement. But it's not the Bible. Because the Bible doesn't say that the doctrine of the sovereignty of God is almost never mentioned in fact the term sovereignty doesn't occur so why does he say it's the son if you had to go by emphasis in the Bible you would have to say holiness is the doctrine around which everything else you can't say that either because you can't say anything is the the most important because they all are but what I'm saying is you can't pick one and just focus on one and ignore everything else so you have to see what all has God said so a friend of mine once said it's got to be the Bible the whole Bible and nothing but the Bible so help me God you know that in the US court system when you come to testify you put your hand on the Bible I promise to tell the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth So help me God. So we need to understand that that's in our responsibility in the battle for truth. We need to realize that it's the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible. Okay, you still with me? Wow. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 10. The book of Daniel is about the kingdom. He talks about the dominion of God, the rule of God. Uh, if you read through it, it's amazing thing. This is while Israel was in captive, captivity. They been taken to uh, Babylon. And uh, in verse 1, it says, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was called, the, the, whatever his name was, the message was true, but the point of time was long, and he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. So that's basically a summary of what follows. It's kind of like <clears throat> an introduction. But you need to understand that uh, Cyrus ruled Persia from 550 to, to 529 BC. Israel was taken captive to Babylon, which became, got overran by Persia and became Persia, uh, between 600 and 530 B.C., there's a 70-year period, and that's what Daniel is seeking God. He began to read something about the time frame, and he said, there's 70 years, God, when is that? Uh, Ezra had, uh, by 5.30, uh, Ezra had already gone back to to Israel, but Nehemiah comes a little bit after that. And so we're right at the end of their captivity, and he's asking God how long it's going to (coughs) be. And in those days, I, Daniel, was mourning Three full weeks, meaning he's praying and fasting. I ate no pleasant food, no meat or wine came to my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all, till three whole weeks were fulfilled. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, which is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, to behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with gold of apos, His body was like barrel, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes were torches of fire, his arms and feet were like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words were like the voice of a multitude. Sounds very similar to the description in Revelation. I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell on them, and they fled to hide. Therefore I was left alone when I saw this great vision and no strength remained in me for my vigor was turned to frailty in me and I retained no strength. He just got weak. And I heard the sounds of of his words. And while I heard the sounds of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. Sounds like he was so overwhelmed by the presence of God, he fell down on his face. And he was there in a deep sleep, but he could hear the words. Sounds like somebody under the power of the Spirit, huh? Mm-hmm. Suddenly a hand touched me and made me trembling on my knees and on the palms of my hands. So now he's up on his hands and knees, but he's trembling. He said to me, Oh Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words I speak to you and stand upright. For I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. Lying face down in a deep sleep, trembling on his hands and knees and stands trembling. That's interesting. They said to me, I won't get sidetracked there. (laughs) Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Micah, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now we're talking about a messenger from God. We're talking about spiritual things. And he's identifying a principality that is opposing the kingdom of God, opposing God's plan to bring information or revelation to Daniel. Uh, I'm going to, for sake of time, I jump ahead. Verse 20, he said, Do you you know why I have come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia when I have gone forth. Indeed, the prince of Greece will come. And I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. I think that these are two principalities that are set against the kingdom. They're part of the devil's plan, are, are weapons to attempt to stop the uh, the advancement of the kingdom, stand against the kingdom of God because it's Michael who is who, what? The prince of Israel, the kingdom, who does battle with them. So I want to tell you what I think they are and then I'm going to throw in some other scriptures because you don't have to agree with me about this. But you'll have to see them in the Bible because we're going to see this throughout history. I think the first one, the prince of Persia, is the spirit of religion. I want to tell you why I think that. Because if you study history, and you look at that time frame that Israel was captive, that this was going on from 600 to 530 BC, every major religion in the world began or was written down. That's amazing. With one exception, which was Islam, which came 1,200 years later from the very same region. Now, technically... Islam came from Saudi Arabia, which wasn't officially under the kingdom. It was under the kingdom of Persia, but nobody actually lived in Saudi Arabia at 600 BC. It didn't, there wasn't Saudi Arabia. There was nothing. It was all under the kingdom of Persia, but there just weren't people there. Are you still with me? And so in that time frame, now whether you agree with that or not, I think is unimportant, but look over at Matthew chapter eight. I'm sorry, John chapter eight first. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees who are religious people says you're your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him he's saying they were born not physically but spiritually from the devil I believe Satan's the spirit behind religion which is a counterfeit of the kingdom which is a ploy of the devil to distort truth or to destroy truth we have these religious ideas that are so different than what God's revealed himself to be we get into this Matthew 15 and verse 6 Talking again to the Pharisees, he said uh, that they say that we need to honor our father and mother. Thus you make the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Mark seven thirteen says virtually the same thing, but I think I like it a little bit better the way he says it. He says, making the word of God of no effect through your tra- tradition which you have handed down. So basically, their tradition, their religious beliefs have a greater weight than the authority of the word. And so I believe that that what we see is that that religion is a counterfeit to God's covenant plan. It's basically the idea I can make myself better. The Tower of Babel, we can reach heaven, we can reach God. Religion says I can make myself good enough to reach God. The only belief system religion in the world that is different is that God became man in Christ. The truth became flesh and dwelt among us.
1: And I think that was Israel's problem, wasn't it, in that time leading up to when they were taken in captivity in Babylon because they'd gone over to all these other religions and they got into horrible trouble. Mm-hmm. They were sacrificing their children to Bar- Moloch and um, yeah. their pra- just really depraved practices. They were praying to other gods in the temples. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ezekiel seven eight, etc. Praying to other gods.
0: But but if this is true, if if there's actually a a demonic principality behind religion, you can understand why it's been in opposition to the truth of the kingdom
1: mm-hmm.
0: for so many years. It surprises me, well, we'll talk about it in just a minute, but it surprises me when the Catholic Church burned people at the stake Mm -hmm. because they wanted to give people the Bible. Mm -hmm. What? There's something so demonic about that. Mm -hmm. Okay, second principality, Prince of Greece, again, I think is philosophy. Now, we're going to see that through history. Uh, Over in Colossians, whether you see that or not, it's still a a problem if you read in Colossians, uh, where chapter 2 and verse 8, he says, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. Cheat you is plunder you or take you captive through philosophy. And empty to see it, according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Uh, philosophy is the concept that I can know truth through human reasoning. I can figure it out myself. Sounds like the uh, the original temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden, huh? You'll be like God. Knowing good and evil, determining for yourself. Philosophy, we're going to see these two throughout history have been the enemies of the the uh, devil in trying to stop the truth. We think it's, it's some secular uh, king that's going to bring persecution, but it was predominantly religion and philosophy, and we're going to talk about those, and you have to understand the background be f- so we can understand why some of the questions that we have. But let me just take them aside for for a couple of minutes and just touch on one thing that is kind of philosophical, but I just want you to understand arguments, and that is a term called presuppositional analysis. It's in your notes there. Uh, presupposition is something we suppose, something, it's a belief that we have that's often unspoken and sometimes subconscious. <clears throat> presupposition is a, that belief that's before the argument or the, the thing that, that we're talking about. It's a presupposition. We, we think something, but we often aren't aware or we don't talk about it. We just assume that everyone believes the same thing. Okay, so, a scientific worldview that comes from Aristotle, which basically was only what is natural is real, only what you can know with your senses is real, that scientific worldview, if you believe that, there's no place for any supernatural. So, people who believe that, there's no God, there's no supernatural. Now, if that's your presupposition, and you look at the origin of the world, but supernatural is already taken off the table, then the most logical thing is evolution. How do we explain origins without something supernatural? Without a God, we come to some concept of evolution. Why? Almost without exception, those who believe that have a presupposition that there is no supernatural. They've never examined the issue. They've never looked at what is the evidence for the existence of God. They just assume that it doesn't that there is no supernatural because only what's natural is real. And everyone they know believes that. And if we say it enough, everyone will just assume it's true. But they never actually examined it. And then they get into it if you're aware of the presuppositions that people have. Sometimes it helps you understand how in the world did they come... I think it was Norman Geisler said, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. (laughs) (laughs) Because it takes more faith. Mm -hmm. Because it's contrary to all the evidence. Mm -hmm. And the same thing, evolution is contrary to the majority of the evidence. And too often as Christians we think We just tell people we believe in creation because the Bible says so. Man, there's tons of evidence about, a whole lot more than about evolution. In fact, you can't find evidence for evolution. You're thinking, I'm crazy. I used to have a neighbor who was a, what was he? Geologist. Geologist. He was a professor of geology at uh, Flinders University when we lived in Adelaide. And I was doing a class on evolution and creation and had all this evidence for creation. But I literally, I could not find evidence for evolution. I went to libraries, library, I went to the university, couldn't find it. I finally asked my neighbor, who was a geologist, I said, you believe in evolution, right? He said, yeah. I said, can you help me out here? Can you point me to a book that points out the evidence for evolution? And he looked at me and he thought for a minute, and he said, I said, give me a week.
1: <laughs> and he came back a week later and he said,
0: I can't find any. He said, this is something I've been taught since I was a child and nobody has ever given me evidence. And I went, yet, if we say it enough, everyone will just assume it has to be true. Where's the evidence? And he was a churchgoer and he told us he had never met anyone who believed in creation. Mm. Mm. Well, like, mm. seriously? Why not? Very, very liberal church. Yeah. But, still, but still. And so, I mean, he was feeling, you know, it just everyone believes this, but where's the evidence? Couldn't find it. Uh, there used to be uh, books that used icons. They were kind of illustrations of what uh, evolution would look like. Mm. And, uh, but nobody considered them evidence because they, they weren't evidence. But now if you Google evidence for evolution, they will point you to the icons. Mm. Mm. Icons like uh, the peppered moths in, in uh, industrialized England. Peppered moths, dark and white moths, as uh, England became industrialized and the suit from the factories affected the, the buildings that the uh, more moss were dark than were light. but th- the reason it's an icon, not an evidence, is because it was an evolution, and it was very clear from the as the scientists observed that the lighter moss stood out, and the birds ate more of them than the than the dark ones. I always
1: thought it was the monkeys that um, they proved evolution
0: or uh, they tried to prove. No, it. no, it's it's just a. Yeah, the a theory. Name. And that's the thing. You see yeah, that Ascent of Man poster, yeah. which is all just someone's artwork.
1: Oh.
0: So, yeah, it's not there. So, unfortunately, these presuppositions can also apply to theology. Theological, like what... I'm going to say theological, but I call them philosophical because a lot of what goes under the name of theology is not Bible at all, it's philosophy. And I'm going to hopefully help you understand that into the future. Okay, here's my legal disclaimer for the class. Got to say this. My presupposition is I believe the Bible is God's revelation of himself and his plans and his ways. It has authority because he's the author. If you don't believe that, then you shouldn't be in this class. I can point you to this place, if you have some questions, uh, Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, uh, Lee Strobel's Evidence for the Bible. There's a whole lot of things that will point you to evidence if you're not sure about the Bible. But that's not really the, the focus of what we're doing. We're, we're assuming we do, and then that's why we're looking at what does the Bible say, Okay. So that's just my legal disclaimer. Five-minute break. Okay, I want to deal with just briefly a look at history and religion's attack on the authority of the Word of God. Because I don't think most of us have an issue with religion. We're not religious, but I want to just set the background so I can get it out of the way, and then we can move on to what I think is much more current today. I mean, religion is still a, a enemy of the uh, a weapon of the enemy, but I think what's affecting our culture and people more today is uh, philosophy. And uh, we're going to get to that. But I just want to take a look at history. Uh, uh, religion's attack on the authority of the word. And uh, most of you are aware that the, the church group... Uh, Paul, his missionary journeys, there was great response. And then something happened about 300, and uh, in the early 300 ADs, 312, the uh, emperor at the time, Constantine, was facing a battle. Uh, he wasn't sure he could win. He had a dream of some light in the sky and uh, felt like he heard the words, in this sign, conquer. And someone told him that that light was the cross. And so he painted crosses on all the shields of all his, his troop. And they prevailed. And so he thought that was an indication that God was on his side. And basically what happened is that he made Christianity an acceptable religion in the Roman Empire. It was not until about 380. Did I write it in here? Yeah, 380. Theodosius made Christianity the official religion. So when Christianity became the government-backed religion, it became advantageous for people to become Christians. And many pagan and different religious people just kind of joined in and there was a secretism that took place. But what happened is that the, church, the Catholic Church grew in authority. It grew in power until a while later, if you know history, the Roman Empire crumbled in the late 400s, but the church continued. And so under this vacuum was this church that had more and more power, and eventually the Pope was elevated to a position that what he said was equal to or greater authority than the Bible. And so they're called papal edicts, and they did all kinds of stuff. And so what happened then is it led to a period of darkness. It's called the, uh, the Dark Ages. And what really happened is that the church didn't want people to read the Bible. Now, in that time, there were only a few Bibles because they're all handwritten, and they were in Latin that only priests read, and they didn't want people to read them because they had this control this authority, if they only knew. So everything in this spiritual realm had to go through the priest. They told you what the Bible said. If you needed to confess, you had to confess to them. You had no relationship directly with God. But they had this incredible authority. And as uh, I said the other day, well, John Acton said, uh, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so you enter this time of corruption Called the Dark Ages, where uh, it was just terrible. It led to some of these papal edicts, things like 12, 1215 A.D. That they came up with this idea called transubstantiation. What that actually means is that the bread and the the uh, wine becomes the body and blood of Jesus. And that unless you take the real body and blood of Jesus, you can't be saved. So now the church, Catholic church, has the means of salvation under their control. It's not in the Bible. But what the Pope said was as important, so you have this belief. And if you get out of favor with the church, they can deny you communion, which means if you die you 're going to hell. talk about power that 's pretty amazing then uh and from twelve thirty one to about fifteen hundred you get the inquisitions and basically this was the church having this authority they they gave power authority to inquisitors to keep people pure. <clears throat> I, I wrote a quote here from a book on revival by Winky Pratney, and it says, Yet it was dangerous to disagree with the clerics. In the fifty years before the Reformation began in, 17, in 1517, the Spanish Inquisition alone burned 13,000 men, women, and children at the, at the stake mm-hmm. and racked and tortured and thrown into fearful ju- dungeons, 175,000 more in one nation. Mm-hmm. And these inquisitors were everywhere that the church had control. Talk about corruption. Mm-hmm. And then by 1500s, the belief in indulgences. The church was raising money so they had this idea, again, papal edict, that if you gave money, you could literally buy forgiveness for sin in advance. And that's what's called an indulgence. If I pay for it up front, it's not sin. And then I can do whatever I want. Again, I a papal edict and undermines the authority... Of the uh, the Word of God, and so what you end up having in this Dark Ages and this authority of the Church is a breaking away from that corruption. Most of you know this in history. In the northern part of Europe, it's called the Reformation, and really, it started with a whole bunch of Catholics who were trying to bring re- reform to this Church that had gotten so bad. Uh, the whole idea of returning to the Word, and that's what the Reformation was about, returning to the authority of Scripture. And it started as early as the 1300s. John Wycliffe basically said, Scripture alone is the authority. John Hus, who was killed, said, I've said that I would not for a chapel full of gold recede from the truth. And then, as you know, Johannes Gutenberg invented the printing press, which made the Bible much more available, and then Martin Luther, who most people see as the, the beginning of the Reformation. The Reformation actually started 200 years before Martin Luther. He was the, the culmination of it, and uh, he basically said his 95 Theses, you know, I could stand on Scripture alone. You know, show me from the Bible. Uh, and then William Tyndale was burned at the stake in in 1536, but early in his ministry, he was appalled at the lack of biblical knowledge of the clergy. He said, if God spared my life, spares my life before many days, I will make it possible for a boy behind the plow to to know more scripture than you do. These guys were the church defending the truth. And they gave their life. And we are carrying on from that tradition. Uh, the importance of the word. And so there began a restoration of truth that had been lost in the dark ages. The problem with that is that it was hard for God to restore truth because he would find someone like Martin Luther who basically came to understanding that justification is by faith alone. He got persecuted by the Catholics and they called his followers Lutherans after Luther. And so they took that as a name, an identity, and that became their truth. And when God wanted to restore other truth, he had to often find another group of people. So when he wanted to restore the truth about the... Baptism of immersion of believers. A guy named Grebel and guys named Grebel and Mance, They became known as rebaptizers or Anabaptists because ev- everyone was baptized as a child, and they said, "No, that's not actually biblical." They became known as rebaptizers. They were the forerunners of the Baptists, the Quakers, the Mennonites, the Brethren. They were persecuted not only by the Catholics but by the Lutherans. And then God wants to restore truth about the leadership of elders called the Presbytery, and they became began to be called the Presbyterians, and they were persecuted by the Catholics, the Lutherans, and the Anabaptists. (laughs) So the restoring of truth that was lost is a long process. You get Wesley being doers of the word, not hearers only, called holiness. Uh, and they were called Methodists because they had a method for holiness. So they're persecuted by who? the Catholics, Lutherans, Anabaptists and the Presbyterians amazing and then you get the baptism of the Holy Spirit Azusa Street and they're called Pentecostals and they take the name and they're persecuted by all the denominations you still with me? so uh, that restoration of truth Began with the Reformation in the north, but in the southern part of Europe, the breaking away from the church is called the Renaissance or Renaissance. How do you pronounce it here?
1: Renaissance.
0: Renaissance. Renaissance. Okay, which actually means rebirth. That's what Renaissance means, and it was a rebirth of the classics. It was a return to Greek philosophy. Reformation was a breaking away of the authority of the church and a return to the authority of the word the Renaissance was a return to Greek philosophy. And so you have a whole group of people, uh, a revival of the philosophies of Plato and Aristotle. Neoplatonism, if you want to study history and you want to study philosophy, you see that, all those things. Uh, uh, and the result of that is that it led to this naturalistic worldview. Okay? Aristotle said basically, uh, only what you can know through your senses is real. But it it has this very natural approach. Now, we're going to see that because this affects our understanding of the Bible. How did we get cessationists who don't believe that there's any moving of the Holy Spirit today? They were affected by the philosophy of naturalism. And we'll get to that later. Uh, So philosophy is that we can know truth through human reasoning and logic. If there's no supernatural, there's no God. And so man's mind replaces the authority of the Word of God. What I can think, I can figure it out. And so in the religion, it's the authority of the church that replaces the authority of the Word. In philosophy, it's man's mind that replaces the authority of the Word. It's reasoning and logic. It's important that you understand that this is all introduction because we're going to see a lot of the questions that people have about theology is because what they've actually been taught isn't theology, it's philosophy. It's not Bible. It's some man's reasoning. You still with me? Okay. So this affects, affected theology. Again, this is all happening. Thomas Aquinas wrote Summa Theologica, which was a synthesizing of philosophy and theology. And he did that, it was written between 1265 and and 73 AD, so it was quite early. So this philosophy is taking place, this theology in the north, this philosophy in the south, the authority of the word, and the church is caught in the middle trying to pull the two together. But what happened is that philosophy won out. in most of Europe. But this philosophical idea didn't start there. It actually started way back with Augustine in 400. So while we've been focusing on the authority of religion, trying to replace the the principality of religion, trying to replace the authority of the word, philosophy was always kind of working in the background. It was the enemy's other weapon that was working in the background, but it wasn't needed because he was successful with religion until that fell apart, and then, boom, plan B. Philosophy comes in. And so we're going to come back to Augustine a little bit next week. And look at that, because I want you to understand, again, all this is some of the questions we have. We have a uh, almost fatalistic approach in much of religion and culture that what God's going to do, he's going to do. It comes from Calvin. Basically, everything that happens is God. So much so has it affected our culture that in the insurance industry, what do we call a catastrophe? An act of God. God did it. So we have this idea that so affected our culture, but where did it come from? How did we end up with that? Is that what the Bible says? Or is that something else? And we're going to see it actually as something else completely. It's philosophy. So a lot of the questions that we face, and one of the big ones is Calvin, Calvinism. And so we're leading up to that. Huh? Eek. But I want you to understand, you can't jump in the middle of it without understanding some of the presuppositions. Give you a hint. Calvin was trained as a lawyer in a university before he got saved. He grew up in an area where philosophy had won out. He eventually gets saved, but he brings this philosophical background to his understanding of religion. <laughs> <laughs> Any questions there? Did I? I know I went through that really quickly. You can study all of history and see these things, but what, what, you, what I want you to understand is that that battle for truth has gone on through the ages and we're, we're continuing it we're not starting it we're continuing it and god's entrusted his truth in his word to his church it's interesting it says the church is the pillar ground of truth
1: does it ever make you wonder russ are we that generation who is persecuting the next truth that god is <laughs> restoring
0: to his church which is a good question i mean what is god looking for he's looking for people who will be so focused on him that their identity is not in a truth, but their identity is in Jesus. Mm. What identity becomes a theological position. I uh, When we first moved here, I went to a a place that makes signs to get the little sign that we have out front that says, you know, uh, Redemption Hills Church this way. And uh, the guy I asked me why I was there, and I told him that, you know, we were planning a church. And so the first thing he asked me is, uh, do you believe in the sovereignty of God? And I went, yeah, but probably not how Calvin defined it. <laughs> and he immediately stepped back and uh, he was actually immediately putting me in a Boxing. theological place. <laughs> am I reformed? Or am I one of those other So yeah, it's, uh, God's looking for people who their identity, I think, will be in Him and not in a, a particular truth. you know uh, We want to be fully word and fully spirit, and not one or the other. And that's part of, part of the fully word is the Bible, the whole Bible. And nothing but the Bible—not pick and choose bits and parts of the Bible, but also fully Spirit. Mm-hmm. And so, I understand those those two. Is that? Any other questions? It's one of the reasons why it's so important to be willing to change, you yeah, and be teachable, mm-hmm. because we yeah. can get set in a certain way of thinking, yeah. you know, unless we're mm. we have a teachable heart and willing to keep learning. And, and that very thing itself, we're going to see next week. I'm going to jump ahead just a little bit and let you know this, but change itself was the, comes from the kingdom of God. Greek philosophy believed that any change was bad, that anything that was valuable, that was eternal, never changed. And therefore, there if there's no reason for any change on, on the earth, change is bad. So if you're in a a place of wealth and power, you don't want to see anything change. You know, the, the whole approach to, to human rights didn't exist. Hey, it was, this is how God designed the world, and, and you should be slaves. You know, and that wasn't God. It was some abstract concept that Plato had. But that's really where it came from, is that, that no change. And so it was actually Christianity that said, we can actually be born again. We can actually be redeemed. We, Our future is not set. We can grow in Christ. We can be different. Mm-hmm. That brought a whole new idea that that was alien to the Greek world. Mm-hmm. But God said, His mercy is a new every morning,
1: doesn't he? That yeah. So that in itself is
0: creative and changing. Say
1: again? I said that in itself is creative
0: yeah. and changing. Exactly, I mean, God obviously is creative. Uh, we often see Christianity in light of Judaism, and we ignore Christianity in light of the the Greek world that Israel existed in, the Greek Greek philosophy and the the Roman beliefs, and they that I mean it was terrible. 70 A.D., uh, guys came in and killed over a million people in Israel, and in Rome they did. They could care less. Because they weren't people. They were slaves. They were others. They had no rights. They were conquered people. And so, who cares if they die? They had no concept of what we have as far as every person is valuable. And so, uh, yeah, change itself I think God wants people who are, will embrace mm-hmm. that and say, okay. I had a friend who said, the only thing that's permanent is change. Mm-hmm. The only thing that, that will always be with us is change. Is Roman Catholic and Catholic, is that the same or is it different? It's the same, just, just different words. It, it started out Roman Catholic. Catholic means universal. And so it was the... Uh, Roman Catholic Church that became universal, so it became just the Catholic Church. But it's virtually the same foundation. Centered in Rome as opposed to Byzantium. Yeah. Or Constantinople. Yeah. Constantinople. Constantinople.
1: But, but some, isn't sometimes it used in different terms, like Roman Catholic as distinct from the Catholic Church, which is the universal church, I believe, in the Holy Catholic mm-hmm. Church. doesn't mean Roman Catholic, I don't think, does it, in the...
0: It, it, um, it, any time, almost any time yeah. when people use the term Catholic they're referring to the Catholic Church but yeah. it does mean universal so, so yeah. I think the, uh, the Westminster Confession says I believe in the, the Holy the Catholic Church which means is that right? But reminds, yeah. 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 yeah so, yeah. so, so you identify the two mm-hmm. yeah. I personally don't like that because yeah. I prefer the kingdom as opposed to the Catholic Church but it's confusing. it is confusing, and so yeah. But that's mm. so Roman Catholic re- really is that foundation oh, where God. it comes from. Uh, I thought
1: it might have been a higher thing because of the Pope, because nah. they class him say he's Roman Catholic. Yeah. So I thought that must have been a higher.
0: But but if you if you see that if you see Catholic Church on the corner, that's part of the Roman Catholic
1: right.
0: denomination or, or group. Okay. So yeah. Yep.
1: And they don't think that they're sinning. They don't believe they're sinning
0: with what they're doing. Well, oh, yeah, as far as their beliefs. Yeah. No, they've with, been taught... With
1: what they do, yeah, taking people's oh, yeah. money and all that. They don't believe
0: that sin. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's hard for me to tell you what they believe. Yeah. Uh, and probably within the Roman Catholics, there's a lot of Christians. Mm-hmm. People yeah. that really very yes. really yeah. much so are... Yeah. Yeah. a lot of people feel with the spirit so, yeah. that yeah that again the the belief system is not necessarily biblical it's that the popes added things that are extra bible in these papal edicts so things like transubstantiation isn't in the bible okay the pope made it up uh, and so so that their belief system includes some other stuff. So, yeah, I, again, uh, it's hard to define someone else's sin that isn't necessarily in the Bible. Someone who takes communion that way and believes it's, it's the body and blood of Jesus, I don't think it's necessarily <clears throat> They're They're not killing somebody there. They've just been taught something that's not true. Yeah. but it gives the, the church an incredible authority over people well, it's just, someone said to me once the
1: Pope's not going to heaven because you know, he's
0: not a born again Christian and I said well we can't say that you know but I don't know <laughs> Bible, what the Bible does say is that we we can't judge yes, that's right. yeah. we don't know uh, I, I, there have been a whole lot of Popes I pretty well guarantee didn't go to heaven but that doesn't mean that everyone isn't. Uh, and uh, whether they know Jesus or whether they actually have responded to him, come in a relationship with God. There's a, I think there's a lot of people in religious systems who are taught things but have a hunger for, for reality and for God. Uh, that doesn't mean that they, they know enough to leave the system, but I think Jesus in his mercy responds to their heart. So...